Hello, and welcome to season six of the Second Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I am so, so, so excited to be back bringing you amazing stories of women who have changed their lives and or careers after the age of 35. As my regular listeners will know, I am on a mission to shout to the world that women do not become invisible, but have stories to tell at every age, and to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter. Please subscribe and tell a friend to subscribe to the podcast. Secondly, I'm publishing a new newsletter. Same vibe as the second chapter podcast, positive stories of female power, the second chapter news, and a quote or two to get you thinking. I won't spam you, expect it every couple weeks, and I'm sending out the second chapter stickers to the first 100 subscribers. Sign up at thesecondchapterpodcast.com. This week, I'm speaking with Nikki French. When they say things are going to the dogs, it usually means they're getting a lot worse. But when Nikki's life went to the dogs, she found her true calling and started a dog training community and movement. She said, I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a dog trainer. And that was it. Literally that. It was just like, of course, that's what I'm going to be. It was that black and white. I resigned two days later. Hi, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really happy to have you here. How are you? I'm brilliant. It's such a pleasure to be here. I've been so excited about this one. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. I'm really excited too. I have to start by saying I normally don't start the podcast on a soapbox. I feel like I usually get there. But when I was reading about you, I was getting so annoyed with the fact that people are so, well, society is so likely to dismiss the stories of women as we get older because you have so many stories and it just seems like your life's getting more and more interesting. There's so many good stories to tell. <laughs> no, it definitely feels like my life is getting better and more and more exciting with age. Yeah, absolutely. I'm there. <laughs> And I mean, not just that, but the the various things that have happened to you and that you've done along the way. So I was looking and I was like, I have a list of about a million questions that I could ask you. And I don't feel like I could necessarily do that with somebody who's 25 years old. Mm, yeah. And I think I was thinking about it it's because I had such a big career shift later on in life. Part of me has done a lot of questioning of, have I only just found my true vocation? But then I think, actually, I'm, I'm as good as I am at what I do now because of everything that went before. So indirectly or directly, it's all contributed along the way. There's no, I don't look back and think, oh, I wish I was started doing what I'm doing now 20 or 30 years ago. There's none of that. It was all the right path at the right time. Yeah, it's interesting because I would say the same in that, I don't know, even when I go to look at my CV or resume and go, what skills do I have? It's all come together to make me who I am today. And I could, you could fill a lifetime with regrets saying I should have, could have, would have, but really it is our life experience that gets us to where we are now. Yeah. I'm saying yes to stuff that I could never have managed to do 10 years ago. Yeah. Let alone 20 or 30. Let's get into all of these exciting experiences and all the questions I have, or at least a few of them. <laughs> I'm intrigued by your Dr. Doolittle uh, vibes of childhood. Could you tell me a little bit about talking to wild ponies in the new forest and such? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I described myself as that slightly feral child. I, I, I hated wearing shoes. I have really wide, very short feet. Probably too much information. No, um, I have very you know, wide, very long feet. So I totally get it. <laughs> So getting shoes was not easy, but I just loved, I was very much of a barefoot kid. And even though we lived in a relatively urban area, I didn't like wearing shoes. So I was the kid climbing trees and climbing frames. And I just thought that I could talk to animals. I really did. And in a funny way, I could because I had so much patience to just sit somewhere like some weird patch of like at the edge of a building site or something like that, where there were some trees. And I would think I could talk to the squirrels and I would sit there long enough that they would actually come over to me. So I would think, I thought I would, I was taming squirrels. Well, I just used to sit there for ages. I don't know. It's a bit random. I didn't have many friends as a kid. Um, <laughs> we used to go camping at the weekends when, you know, I was younger and we'd go to places like the new forest where you have the wild ponies and I, again, I would just go off and it was in the times when it was probably okay for younger children to wander off on their own, which you wouldn't allow them to do now. But again, I would just be trying to get near these wild horses and they would come towards me. And I tried it as an adult and I've realised it's virtually impossible to get them to come near you. But I don't know. I, I, just had, I just wanted to be around. I had original early fantasy of being a vet until I found out what was involved in being a vet and it wasn't just cuddling 
kittens and puppies and stuff like that. So that I ditched fairly early on. But yeah, I, I couldn't get enough of being around animals. So what changed or what ended up, obviously, if you didn't like what went into being, being a vet, that didn't seem the right thing. But then art school. Yeah, I think I wasn't particularly academic. I worked really hard and got decent grades, but it was never easy. I didn't enjoy academia and I was very creative at school. I was in the, the top of art and other sort of creative subjects. And it was, I guess it was kind of the only thing that I felt that I was good at. So I didn't want to do A-levels as it was at the time. So I went to art college at 16 mm -hmm. as much as anything, because I, I couldn't see the point of selecting A-levels with a view to not having any idea what I would want to do at university. So I think art college at 16, I left home to, to actually go to art college. And I think it just gave me a few years just to grow up a little bit and just have some fun. So I did it without knowing what it was going to lead on to, but I didn't have another plan. So it seemed like a really good thing just to grow up a little bit, I think. <laughs> this sounds so terrible to say, but then you also said, then I realized I wasn't really a great artist. <laughs> yeah. Anything artistic, whether it's being an actor or being a designer, if you're not incredible and also have the right time, right place, Leia, you don't stand a chance. And I was very realistic pretty early on. And as much as I was good at school, put me into a, a bigger group of people, I very quickly realised it. I was not going to be a designer and I didn't particularly want to just go into becoming a window dresser or something like that. So I decided it was time to crack on and earn some money. So I just started looking for a job and I fell into a marketing agency. My, my career was not strategic, let's be honest. <laughs> Fair enough, though. I think it's the, the people that do have these sort of strategic career paths always, I don't know, they blow my mind because I'm like, when does one take total control of one's life? Because at this point, I'm still going, oh, this opportunity came up. Maybe I'll give that a go. Or I have an idea. And there was so much in, I do have a real creative eye. I think I'm very good at editing and critiquing and briefing. And I, I understand about layout and balance and things like that. And actually all of that creative side of things has always been so much more used to me in a corporate life than I ever thought possible. So again, I don't ever feel like that. It was three years at art college. I don't feel like any of that was wasted because every, every career I've ever, every job I've ever had, I have used that sense of design and creativity that it helped develop in me. As someone who used to be a designer myself, I always found that I ended up mostly in corporate design because I think there was that balance in me of I'm somewhat creative, I also, so having an artistic eye, really understanding a little bit of the business that goes behind it, or, you know, actually enjoying stuff that wasn't the just wild creative side. So I think that is a really good balance. Yeah. You know, and in, in, in later part of my career, I would be involved in briefing designers and um, interior designers. And I think it made me a much better client because I had some understanding of what was involved, even though I wasn't good enough to be that person myself, I think I was never the person that would be like, oh, could you just da 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 da, -da, -da. <laughs> And I know how many creative people will just be like, oh God, they have no idea what that means. So I think it, it did make me a much better client further down the line, just having some feel for the amount that they put into any kind of creative process. Yeah, my partner will really appreciate that. He's a prop maker and he's, what is it with the, you know, clients and designers that don't understand that can you just means yep. Yep. <laughs> taking something <laughs> apart and starting all over, basically. So you got to use your creativity in your marketing role and that lasted about 11 years? Yeah, it was 11 years that I was with the same company. So I had, before I went to that company, I think I had a year somewhere else, but then I, I just fell into this small company. There was five people at the start and it, it just grew phenomenally. I grew with it. I had a managing director that saw in me and believed in me way more than I ever saw in myself and was always pushing me on to do more than I thought possible. I'm hugely grateful for 
his belief in me because it, I, I grew very much on the wave with a company that grew massively over that decade. And we had some fantastic clients and we had some fantastic people and going through my whole 20s working and socialising with a group of the closest friends imaginable. It was a wonderful time, absolutely wonderful time. But then after after all that length of time, I was the person that if anybody couldn't find anything, predate a lot of data, it was storage boxes. And if you couldn't find something that a client needed to get hold of, it would be go and ask Nikki where it is. And I, you know, I, it was this sort of part of the furniture thing. And I thought, okay, I, if I don't move now, I'm going to be here forever. That was a scary decision. I used to be so resistant to change. Anything new terrified me absolutely terrified me. And it is funny because I think you're saying you're around 30 at that point, but to become part of the furniture at such a young age and to also be resistant to change, I feel like you would think that's when you're most excited to go and make changes and everything. But it is really hard because I remember around that time needing some career change and it's, oh, what happens now? It was incredibly scary. And I remember a lot of my friends, because a lot of us were similar ages, a lot of my friends were really like, oh, dreading being 30. And I remember being so excited about being 30 because I'd been a director for a good few years in this company before the age of 30, so in my mid-20s. And there was something in me, I don't think the phrase imposter syndrome existed back then, but there was something in me that felt like the clients at the time didn't take me as seriously as perhaps they could because I was so young. Mm. And there wasn't many young female directors at that time. I think things have moved on quite a way now. But I remember being really thankful that if I'm in my 30s, people will take me. And it's not that it's not that they didn't take me seriously. I'm sure it was entirely in my own head, but I remember being so excited about being 30 when everyone else around me was going, oh God, I don't want to be 30 years old. So yeah, 30, I think was, I felt like a good age, but I think I've had that same mental attitude with 40 and 50. So I think that's, <laughs> I think that's my mindset. <laughs> that's good though, because so many people, I don't know, I have a friend, actually I'm a male friend, so it feels less common, at least less commonly spoken about, but he was just turning 60 and he's somebody that I've worked with and the grumpy faces he was making over his birthday cake. <laughs> so it's nice. It's really refreshing to hear someone say these milestones were welcome because I yeah. think it is. It's tough for a lot of people. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I, and, I, and I, you know, the next one, 60 is some way off, but I, I'm ready. Bring it on. <laughs> I love it. So at the ripe old age of 30, you made a big leap into the freelance world, which might not have been quite as freelance as you expected. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. It, for me, that was a, a big, scary thing to go from over a decade with one company to say, I'm going to be a freelance marketing person. Would I be good enough? Was I only any good at the job that I was doing? Because I knew where all, all the archive boxes were and yes. what was in it and I had all the relationships and I knew who to talk to. I was very worried that when you took all that away from me, did I have the skills to be able to just go in and do it for two weeks in a company or two months in a company? So I was very much in the head of, okay, no, this is good for me. It's very scary, but freelance, this is what I'm going to do. And there, was the, the, there seemed to be quite a lot of opportunities for freelance marketing people and uh, signed up with an agency. And ended up with a maternity cover contract for nine months, 12 months with a property developer that was fairly local to me. And I never left that job. <laughs> it was the <laughs> shortest freelance career ever. They were, it's like I, in the previous company, we did marketing for cars and high-end stereos and printers and things like that, some high-end goods. But it's like when I got into the world of property developers and you're dealing with homes, houses, beautiful apartments, for me, the excitement of marketing products like that is infinitely more exciting than a chocolate bar or a, you know, a bottle of beer, which, you know, is, is equally difficult in its own way. But for me, I love the complexity and the, the sort of the more complicated buying decisions that people have to go through before making a big commitment. So I just felt I've just, I found me, I found where I should be. My love for all things to do with sales and marketing, to do with property, just, it just hit me. So the lady never came back after having her child. She decided she did, she wanted to stay off. So I was taken on full time. 
And then that started a 20-year career. I just, I felt like I'd found my marketing niche in big residential developments. And I know one of the things that was a big project was the 2012 Olympics, which I was just fairly fresh to London at that point. So that was such an exciting time. Tell me a little bit about what that project was like. Oh, uh, it was phenomenal. I, 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 it's brought me up in goosebumps to this day. It was the most phenomenal project to be a very small part of. So I was the sales marketing and comms director for the Athletes Village for the, the Olympics in London. And the master plan for that whole area of East London was already in place to be a long-term regeneration of that area, really bringing that area back to life. With the bid, it was decided that this could be the Athletes Village. And so this plan was put together to have a temporary use as where all the athletes would sleep. Mm -hmm. And then, so it would be built in a certain way. And then we'd rebuild part of it so that it then became the apartments that people, the homes that people would live in long-term. It was a, just the most incredible project. But I think the, I was there for oh, a good four years. It was the change, I think, that London saw. And anybody that was around London at the time probably felt it. The tube journeys, the going through all the various parts of London where the events were on, people stopped being, don't talk to other people, Londoners. There was this non-stop party. Every tube, every bus, whether you were going to an event or whether you weren't, everyone was just happy and smiling. And it was like a little magical bubble that London was in for a period of time. And to have a really small part in that is something I'm incredibly proud of. And I feel so fortunate to have been in London at that time. Yeah, so it was a phenomenal project and tens and tens of thousands of people were involved in the stadiums and the buildings and, and everything that went up to the event itself, but then also even to this day, there's still massive parts of that area that are still growing and developing. And it's really revitalized a massive proportion of that part of East London, which is just, yeah, it's just amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I, like I said, I was fairly fresh to London, but I'd been here, ugh, I don't know, a year and something. So like you said, to see what kind of happened around the Olympics. It was like suddenly everybody in a very non-British way <laughs> was chatty and smiley. And I had just gotten used to the idea that, okay, I'm not in New York. And I was living in New York City and people don't, people in America do not think of New York City, New Yorkers as nice people. Everybody's known for being on the go and being, so I had slowed down my pace, but I'd also had to give up the chattiness that is American a little bit. Because, you know, in New York, even on the subway, people will end up talking to each other a bit. That doesn't happen on the tube. And I just started to get used to that. And then suddenly London was a party. It was the year of a royal marriage. It was the year of the Olympics. It was the year. Of, and yeah, I got used to that again. And then suddenly it was like, oh, London's back. Now I have to be. <laughs> I have to get back to uh, reigning in my Americanness. But yeah, it was such a good time. And actually going over there now, it is interesting to see how these buildings have been repurposed. And it is, it's such a different area. And to go to the park there is still so great because you have memories of what was happening in 2012. So yeah, thank you for your contribution to that fabulousness. <laughs> Doing some brochures. And <laughs> no, it was a little more than that, but not much. <laughs> So once again, it seems like you're in this career that really is working for you. You're enjoying it. You're getting to work on some amazing projects. But I know it was a, a pretty big incident that really started to turn the wheels. A couple of big incidents and, and happenings in your life that started to turn the wheels. This isn't what I want to do anymore. Yeah, I mean, I loved my job. I, I Every company I'd ever worked for, I was very fortunate. I got headhunted by a number of developers with some incredible developments in the UK and, and in London. And it, it was a tough job. It's a yeah, that kind of level in that kind of industry. It's very fast moving. Sales need to happen. It's quite pressured. There's quite a lot of travel. If I had a commute that was under an hour and a half each way, I was doing well. We did overseas travel. I could be away from home for, you know, 10 days or a week, you know, two and a half weeks, something like that at a time. So it was grueling, but... It was just it's what I did. It was part of the job and there was enough enjoyment and buzz in, in, in terms of what we actually did and who I was working with. But I was actually knocked off my bicycle 
I, I used to cycling to work occasionally. It was a good hours cycle ride, but I did a couple of charity bike rides and it was a good way of getting in some training. At the time it took me to commute, I could actually cycle there and then shower and get ready at work early in the morning. And I was knocked off my bike in August of 2014 and I wasn't hospitalized. There was nothing broken, but I was very shaken up. I was quite bloody. I was quite bruised. It knocked me sideways, but then I just got up and we, I don't mean got up there and then that day, they, they took me off in an ambulance. <laughs> but, you know, after I, I, I was due to be on holiday two weeks after that anyway. So I actually had my first panic attack. I was on holiday in Italy and my husband at the time was driving through really windy roads and I was the passenger because I still had my arm in a sling and stuff. And I thought I was having a heart attack. I've never had a panic mm-hmm. attack in my life. I had no idea what it was. But just the act of being on really bendy roads brought this adrenaline rush back to me and it was my first panic attack. And that was the turning point of my natural resilience, just starting to leave the building. (laughs) You said in an article that things were not, even though they hadn't diagnosed anything, you were starting to forget things and nothing just felt quite right. Yeah, I, I I would forget words. <laughs> I forgot, you know, like you have a tree, you have the tree trunk. We used to do computer-generated images for the new developments while we were before we built them. And I remember being in a meeting and trying to describe something on this picture. <laughs> I couldn't remember like the name of this thing. It was like being a child again. Certain words would just leave my head. They would like I couldn't remember what this tree trunk that it was called a tree trunk. And I used to feel very exposed. I would be reading something from a report in front of me and I would be muddling up numbers and doing this in front of senior directors in an environment that's probably not not the most forgiving for not performing highly. I I felt very exposed very quickly. Did they ever discover what was causing it or was it? So I I had, yeah, I had an um, MRI and there was a little bit of shadowing that could well have been like a little bit of a, when you hit the the ground, your brain bounces and hits the other side. And it was the right side, i.e. the left side of my brain. I think it was responsible for, it's like word finding and names. Like I'd forget the names of people that had worked for me for three years. And they described it, it's that part of your, it's like a fairground grabber that goes in to try and grab the toy but it just goes to the side of it. So they said it, this is what it is probably what it is. It may stay like this. It may get better. It wasn't so much. I wasn't too worried about that. I think it was more, I just felt so exposed at work. It was, yeah, it's the only way I can describe it that I just felt, I just, it's like my resilience just crumbled. And I think it took you a few years maybe to decide that meant career change, but I know it also kind of affected your personal life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, it was about nine months after the accident, I decided to call time on my marriage. We'd been together for 27 years and it was time for a change and it, you know, on my part. And it probably is something that I could have done four or five years earlier. Well, you said you were resistant to change. So resistant it's- to change, absolutely. But I think after something like that, not that it wasn't a near-death experience, it wasn't for one moment, but it did make me just take a long, hard look and just not want to put up with things. I wanted to do more. I knew I needed to change things in my professional life. And I think I was much more open to just going, I just need to make changes and it's okay to make changes. So I think that was the start of me being braver and addressing stuff and being, yeah, it's okay to to dive into making some big changes. So yes, I, I left my, my, my husband at the time and eventually we got divorced. And on the job side of things, I was sort of limping along, <laughs> I would say, doing best I could, but I clearly wasn't performing to the levels that I was before, but I had no idea what else I could do. I, I couldn't afford to retire. I didn't want to retire. By this time, I was in my late 40s. And I, I just remember this sort of, yeah, it, t- it took me four years of growing panic, I would say, <laughs> of what am I going to do? 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 And 
I, I was very fortunate. I, I was not looking for a long-term relationship and uh, met my boyfriend and fairly quickly after meeting him, he went through some major life changes and retrained. He became a um, sports massage therapist. He became a Pilates instructor and he loved what he did with an mm. absolute passion. Every day, every client he saw, he would just be buzzing off the back of it. And I was just like, I'm really jealous. I want that. <laughs> I don't I want think everyone to... wants that. That's <laughs> the dream, isn't it? I don't want to it? settle for anything other than that. And I think that on the one hand, it spurred me on to keep open to thinking. I, I just kept asking my question, myself the question, what can I do? What am I going to do? Before you go any further, I would love to ask two questions. One being a bit more deep, which is, it's really interesting to me that you talked about your resilience crumbling when it came to how you saw yourself at work and this, I don't know, put together bold persona that you needed to be. But at the same time, you referred to your bravery when it came to making changes and not being so willing to put up with maybe things that weren't going so well in your personal life or things that you needed to change. So I would love to kind of explore that a little bit because I feel like we, what we think of brave and what we think of resilient, it's almost like those two things were changing in opposite ways in your life. I don't know that I understand the question. <laughs> I told you it was deep. <laughs> you used the word resilient. Your resilience was crumbling when you talked about work. But then when you talked about leaving your husband, you just said the bike incident had really forced you to become more brave when it came to just not taking crap anymore, I guess is how I'll put it. So I just think it's interesting the the kind of difference in what we see as resilience and bravery and... It's not even really a question. It's more of a discussion. But do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I do. And I think the difference is the external pressure that I felt at work. That's what I couldn't deal with. And it's almost like it, it's like I wasn't in control, as in control of my own abilities. And I think I felt constantly like I was going to be discovered. Mm -hmm. It was going to be discovered that I, I couldn't do this. And I, I would, before the accident, 10, 12 hours a day were the norm of working and you work at weekends and it would just be work and high quality work and high pace work. And I, I was the person that they gave stuff do, to, to do because I would get, if you want to get something done, who do you give it to? You give it to a busy person. I felt like I was constantly going to get discovered as not being that person anymore. Yes. Whereas I think on the personal side of things, I realized this was something that I have control over and I can change and it needed to change. So it gave me the impetus. It gave me the personal confidence to take hold of that and do it. But I think the work life really didn't feel I didn't feel in control of it at all because I didn't know what else I could do. You know, there was mid-afternoon, I, I would, I'd have a bad meeting or I'd feel what was a bad meeting. And I, I was thinking, gosh, what are they, what are they thinking about me? And I would be crying in the loose. It was that kind of, I just couldn't contain it anymore. And the panic attacks definitely were a thing at work. And I tried to get some counseling on that and that didn't really feel like it helped. I knew I had to change that environment, but that was... I don't think it, it wasn't that I wasn't brave enough to do it. I just didn't know where to go with it. And, and yeah. that, that was a horrible feeling of the, the divorce I could do. Okay. Horrible, nasty, unpleasant. It wasn't, it needed to be done. You get through it, but I couldn't really change the work situation. I still had a mortgage that needed to be paid, right. but I didn't know where I could go. So I think it's that control, not control element that felt very different. Yeah. That's what, that's what I meant because it, it is interesting where you were able to take control. Yeah. Yeah. And where I could, I did. And then eventually with the work thing, where I could, I absolutely did. <laughs> yes. So before we get into how you ended up deciding or figuring out what you should do next, the other thing is so, I feel embarrassed to even bring it up now because I was like, let's talk about bravery and resilience. But you also mentioned to me that you met your boyfriend on Tinder. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, and it's not something that I, I chuck around that regularly because a lot of people are like, oh. <laughs> but I, I don't mind people knowing. Yeah, I, because I'd been with, you know, my ex for so long. I also did, I didn't have much of a social life and, and my work was all consuming. So I, I always say I, when I talk to friends about it, joking, I say Tinder was like every Tinder date was like I was just meeting a friend that I hadn't met before. 
So I didn't, this was not Tinder in what most people's perceptions are of go along and maybe say, hey, uh, this was meet someone in a bar, have a drink and go home again. So it may progress off, but that wasn't, you know, it wasn't, that's not all that Tinder is. It is just a dating app. There are elements that are perhaps not quite that, but that's just part of it. But for me, I tried a couple of other dating apps. I just wanted to get out and meet people. And I was yeah. absolutely not looking for a relationship. It, the absolute opposite. When I met my partner, uh, my boyfriend, Ash, partly I was mortified that all of a sudden I thought my really, you know, I was thinking well, I'd have some, you know, time playing the field. It just it left the building in a matter of months. <laughs> I was a bit gutted about it, but I, it was too good to, to let that one go. Yeah, that was six years ago now. So my Tinder career was pretty short. <laughs> your freelance career and your Tinder career were yeah. quite similar. <laughs> not, I'd not quite put the two and two together, but yeah, about the same length of time. <laughs> So you've been panicking now at work for four years or something. In 2018, a friend happens to mention something that kind of has led to what you're doing now. Yeah. So I've been in an open state of mind of what am I going to do? What, are gonna, what am I going to do? And um, I met up. It's my oldest friend. We went to art college together. We were flatmates at art college together. We used to go to some right old scrapes back then. And we've still stayed in touch. And... She was having a little pre-Christmas lunch, her and another friend of hers was over there and the other friend was a chef and she said, I'm really fed up with chefing. She said, I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a dog trainer. And that was it. <laughs> Literally that. He was just like, of course, that's what I'm going to be. How have I not? How have I not? And even now I look back and think, how did I not come up with that before? I have been animal mad my whole life. Everybody that knows me over the last 20 years was flawed. They had no idea. I hadn't even been able to have my own dog as an adult. I'd had four cats. I had two moggies and then they were getting on a bit. So then I got a Siamese kitten and then the moggies were getting on a bit. So then I got another Siamese cat. Couple. So I ended up having four cats. I'd become the crazy cat lady unknowingly, un un unplanned. So no one knew what I was like with dogs, unless they had a dog, in which case they couldn't keep me away. And I just knew that second it was that black and white. And, you know, that night I researched what course I wanted to do. I resigned two days later, worked my three months notice, set up my own business. And that was just over three years ago. So it was that little sentence that that wonderful Lady D uttered. <laughs> so does wonderful Lady D work as a dog trainer now? No, she didn't end up doing it. No, she does have a, she does, she has got a puppy since then. So they both, my friend and uh, this other Lady D, they both have dogs, but no, she didn't. I did. <laughs> I love that it's so, you know, that it was four years in the making, but the second you heard it, it took you two days. That is not someone who's afraid of change anymore. Yeah, no, oh, no, definitely not. And I'm more and more, I, I, I love change now. I actually really embrace it. And that's been a wonderful gift, I think, that the accident gave me. Or whether it may just be that it's just later life. And I think because it took me so long to find out what it was going to be, the certainty that I had and have had every second, every waking second of every day since that moment, this is what I'm meant to do with this part of my life. And it, it, if, if I'd had the idea earlier on, I might have been a bit like, oh, I've got no experience and how could I do that? And to start off with, we're talking a massive pay cut. So how am I going to do mm. that? I've got a bit of savings. Do I trust? I always thought I couldn't work for myself. I'm such a grafter, but in a team environment. I thought I needed the pressure, the external pressure to really make something a success. So I always thought I'd never work for myself. I thought I'd, I'd procrastinate, I'd be lazy. So I never thought I'd work for myself. But then there it was. And I was just so ready. So I'd never felt more certain of anything. And still, that's just not wavered. And I love that you said you felt so certain, but you also said this is what you're meant to be doing in this part of your life. So it sounds like you're building this amazing community. We'll talk about that in a second, because I never have thought of a dog trainer as being what you are doing. But also, I love that you're kind of open to the fact that this might not be it. Ooh. Oh, no, I think this is it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's what I think right now. But hey, never never say never. I certainly don't think I don't look back and wish. Oh gosh, I wish I'd you know found dog training. There's some people that I know that they've studied all their masters in animal behaviour and zoology, and they've done all sorts of things around the world. And I think, oh gosh, what amazing careers those were that those are. But that wasn't me. And I think 
I've been able to do what I've been able to do with my business because of everything that has gone before this. So if I hadn't had that, who knows what, maybe I would still be a dog trainer, but may, maybe I'd be a very different kind of dog trainer. I don't know. But yeah, it's hard to think I'm going to have another major change. But hey, yeah, no, never say never. Well, <laughs> even the, what you're doing now, though, it is so much building on being a dog trainer. Because when we started talking, I was like, oh, cool, she's a dog trainer. And this is, you know, so different than what she was doing. And then I started looking at the type of dog trainer you are. And it's not that you're, oh, I just go out with dogs every day. It's that you've built this whole community around dogs and training your dogs and what people should be doing. Tell me a bit more or tell our listeners a bit more about the community that you have built, because it's really cool. Yeah, I knew I wanted to work with dogs. I knew I wanted to be a dog trainer, but I didn't want to just, in inverted commas, I hate that, yes. but I didn't want to just be a dog trainer. I wanted to reach more people than I could do one-to-one or even with classes. And I was very fortunate that uh, very early on in my training, I discovered an organization called Absolute Dogs, who are, for me, at the forefront of dog training. So it's all games-based, it's all positive rewards. It really is looking at what we know about how dogs' brains are wired now. And so much dog training is based on information that's five, ten more years out of date. And to take that and, and, and spread that message as far and wide as I can is so important to me because I see so many people with their dogs and they just, they don't understand how their dog's brain works and therefore they base their decisions on how they think their dog works or how as a human, their brain might work. And as soon as you some subtle differences, it could be life-changing to the dogs and life-changing to the people because if anybody has a dog that is anything other than calm, relaxed and happy, it's actually quite hard work. Mm-hmm. And it can have a big impact and a big knock-on effect on, on lots of different parts of their lives. So the cost of not doing things in the right way is much bigger than just having a dog that pulls on the lead or barks at pigeons in the garden. You know, the ramifications on some people's lives can be much bigger. So for me, it was just about how can I get this message out there as widely as I can, other than just training some people with their dogs locally. So for me, Facebook communities was a a great starting point. And so growing that, and I could see that some communities were not as safe in an inclusive way. If you have a dog, I always say there is no such thing as a stupid question. But sometimes I could see people would ask a question that any experienced dog owner would know, well, surely, surely that's not the case. Surely you know that chocolate is bad for them. It was dangerous for them. Surely Mm. you know that, you know, raisins are bad for them. But if you don't know, you don't know. So I just wanted to make a space where people could feel completely safe to ask anything about dogs. But it's, there's just The only rules are that there's no punishment, no aversives whatsoever. We're all just there learning and supporting each other in our relationships with our dogs. Well, you mentioned experienced dog owners and one of the quote unquote behavioral issues being pulling on a lead. And that kind of makes me think of your book, Stop Walking Your Dog, because I'm sure there are plenty of experienced dog owners out there who would think nothing. I mean, when I read the title, I was like, what's wrong with walking your dog? Absolutely. And it it was purposely meant to stop people in their tracks. There are actually times when it is useful to stop walking your dog. And that does go against very much everything that we know about dogs generally says you'll get a dog and you'll walk it one, two, maybe three times a day. That's what you do. But for some dogs, it may well be that they're nervous or they're reactive or they're very overexcitable, constantly putting them in the situation that they might struggle with, say they're nervous of other dogs or they're nervous of people or traffic noises constantly exposing them in that environment when they don't have the skills that they need to be happy in that environment actually can really make life hard for them and therefore quite hard for the owner because even if if anybody's listening that has a dog that barks at other people's dogs most of them have probably experienced some feelings of embarrassment or guilt or stress or something negative. That's not generally a pleasant place to be. You wish your dog wouldn't do that. So I wanted to 
get people talking about the times when you might not want to walk your dog and what else you can do instead. It is not stop walking your dog, sit on your backside, Netflix, binge watching, <laughs> happy days. It's not that. You absolutely need to replace the walking with brain, mental, physical exercises at home. And you can build up the skills that the dog needs in order to then go and have pleasant, happy car walks. So that was really where the, 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 the book for me was just so important to this part of this message that I wanted to get out there. It's so obvious to hear you talk how much you love dogs and love the idea of people having a wonderful relationship with their dogs or animals in general. I just thought, oh, you teach people to train their dogs. And instead it is dog psychology and human psychology and, and how we all relate to each other. It's really interesting. Yeah, massively. And I, I don't train dogs. Yeah, I'm a dog trainer, but I don't tra train dogs. Do you train humans? <laughs> yes, exactly that. Or I show them how to be their dog's best trainer. So whether I'm doing that online, whether I'm doing that through a book or a podcast, or I'm actually sitting in their front room or their garden with them, I'm generally very rarely will touch their dog. I'll just sit there and I'll be right, okay, now you need to do this. Right, now you need to do that and coax them through and coax them through how to work with their dog. Because if you have a great relationship with your dog, your dog will want to please you. Dogs want to work. Even the lazy dogs, they want to work really. They'll either want to work for a bit of food or they'll want to work for a toy or they'll want to work for some praise. Generally, that's what they want to do. And if you tap into that, a, a happy dog is one that thinks that their human has got their back, looks after them, makes sure their needs are met and just makes sure that they're happy. Some of my clients have quite challenging dogs and I can see the stress and the anguish and the anxiety that it can cause them. And whether you're at that end of the spectrum or you've just got a puppy that you're struggling with, having some support and some motivation to keep going. It's not just about a bit of knowledge. There's so much knowledge on the internet and YouTube. You can learn everything for free, but having some accountability to keep doing it and keep doing it a little and often for me is the biggest thing. It's not you get a dog and eight weeks, puppy class, tick, <laughs> dog happy for the next 15 years. It doesn't work like that. They're animals and we do need to keep topping up what they need and what the sort of the parameters of which we'd like them to behave within. They still need boundaries. I think like growing kids and teenagers, some structure, some boundaries are good for them. But yeah, so it's the human element for me is just as fascinating as as much as I love dogs. This is not a job for people that just love dogs. If you don't love people, I, I don't think you make a great dog trainer at all. Yeah. And it does really sound like you're just dealing with relationships at the end of the day. So it's not teach your dog to sit and then you're done. Like you said, tick, tick. It's how is your dog thinking and how can you work together as a happy family? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of happy families and relationships, I'm happy to report that you did eventually get a dog. Of your own. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> he looks amazing. <laughs> as soon as I quit, uh, well, I'd already, in fact, when I was working my notice, I was on several lists of various rescue charities and I was emailing them every week. Hi. Yeah, it's Nikki again. Yeah, I'm still looking for a dog. Hi, this is what I'm looking for. I wanted the youngest dog I could get. I, I understand that when you're going for rescues, getting puppies is, is not easy. So I was flexible on that. But I wanted a relatively young dog. And I wanted a dog that could work with me and be part of the business. So a dog that was happy to work, had lots of energy, was reasonably bright. And it took three months. But then we had an email early one Monday morning from Bassey Dogs Home in London with a photo of a dog. And he was eight months old and he'd been in and out of Battersea twice already at the age of eight months old. Mm. And uh, I got the email about 6.30 in the morning. I think I waited till 7am. I went into Ash, woke him up, went, Ash, look at this dog, look at this dog. He was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, fine. So literally we got in the car and we went to see the dog. And yeah, that was Bodie. And we brought him home two days later and he was, he was meant to be our dog. He's, uh, he's 
absolute chaos a lot of the time. He's a lot better than he was. <laughs> I'm, I'm there in the park with my dog trainer jacket on with the most unruly dog in the park. <laughs> everyone has to look at pictures. The pictures I have of you definitely have Bodhi in them, but like everyone has to look at the pictures. If you don't normally look at the picture that goes along with the podcast, this is the week to do it because he is so cute. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. We, we call him Lemon Juice as a nickname because he's so beautifully hurt your He's a beautiful, beautiful dog. He's he's definitely left. He's definitely been left with some issues. I think he's the whole kind of going in and out of Bashes a couple of times was really tough on him. He wants to meet everyone. Taking him to the pub is not a calm experience. We're working on it, but it's very much everybody walking past. Hi, hi, if you see me, hi, and he turns it on, and every because he looks cute. Everyone's like, oh my god. So, yeah, he's not a relaxing dog to have, but he's just just my soul dog. Just amazing. Yeah. I love it. That's such a happy story. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone can find the po podcast Pup Talk. Yep. Pup Talk, the podcast. Yep. So if you have questions and want to hear cool dog stories, etc. Nick is your woman on Pup Talk. I, of course, asked you to bring a quote, as I always do today. What did you bring for me for your quote? Oh, do you know, I really struggled with this one. I was down to a list of five going, oh, no, I love all of them. <laughs> I think the one that I picked is the one that has been so important to me. So I'm absolutely a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> I love that term too. You said to me that you were a recovering perfectionist and I was like, oh, I'm still working on my recovery, but it's such a good term. My, my old team, so one of my old employers, at one Christmas party, they bought me a pack of red pens because I was, I'm the proofread queen. So everything would come past me and I'd be, literally I'd have my red pen in my hand before I'd even started reading. So yeah, I'm very much, I like everything to be tip top. So for me, it was done is better than perfect, which is credited to Sheryl Sandberg. And it's something I've really had to learn, building the business from scratch, doing everything myself, everything that people see today, I do all of it still. Mm -hmm. I don't have any help other than my niece who does some data entry for me. But other than that, I am pop talk. So everything that's designed, written, all the tech, I've done it all. And that's taken an awful lot of learning, but also having to accept it doesn't all have to be perfect. Sometimes you do just have to get some stuff done and get it out there. Because if I was in my old mindset of, no, I can't let that go. It's, it's the, the, it, there's another 5% that I can polish that. I, I wouldn't get anything done. So that for me has been, it's a quite an uncomfortable shift for me. I'm now happier with change than I am with imperfections. But there was, there was a really good sign. I think it was, was it last week before I put out a reel and um, I put the captions on the video and hit post. And of course, on Instagram, once, once the reel's out there, you can't edit it. It's not like a nice Facebook post. You can go, mm, edit. And there was just a typo in the opening caption. And I was just like, oh, God. And the old me was like, take it down, take it down. And I was thinking, <laughs> I can't. It's going to take me another 20 minutes to redo the captions and post mm. it up. And I put it out there. And I was like, yes, go me. I completely relate. I'm even thinking about with the podcast when I first started doing it and doing the edit, it would take me sometimes two days because I had to take out every single breath. If I heard someone breathe, I took it out. And I started yeah. reading, as I take a big inhale, I, I started reading other podcasters who were talking about, it's real, you're not supposed to be so perfect. And I was struggling with it so much. Like, I don't want them to hear me breathe. I breathe so loudly. <laughs> Granted, I also laugh so loudly. I was keeping most of my <laughs> laughter in. And yeah, the first time I put a podcast out that I had not edited with such a fine tooth comb, I don't know. I don't think anybody, nobody wrote me an email or reviewed me and said, how dare she breathe? And it's probably much more relatable that every once in a while, as humans, we act like it. But it's really hard to embrace that sometimes. So I really love that quote because sometimes it is better just to hit send or just to put something out there in the world and know that we're not perfect. Yeah. So resist the urge to delete. And um, I say um so much. And it's only when you start seeing yourself in videos that you've put onto Facebook or the podcast that, you know, I, again, it was that urge to edit out all my ums. And I realized yeah, that's my full stop. I, I quite, if I'm writing, 
I write in bullet points a lot of the time and it's my bullet point and that's okay. And so I've kind of, I've, I've, I've embraced it. <laughs> it's funny because my mom said to me, she said, oh, I was reading something English and it kept saying ERM. And I was like, ERM is basically our um, but a British person wouldn't really say the R, so it comes out M. And she was like, oh, it all. she was actually reading something because it was written, but as speech. And she was like, what's this erm? Yeah. <laughs> we all do it. If you didn't say um from time to time, it probably means you're not thinking about what you're saying. So God knows what's going to come out of your mouth. I do have a post-it note on my laptop that said, I've crossed out and, and I've written pause and breathe. Neither of those things ever seem to work. So I've stopped trying, but I should just take that post-it note off my laptop now. <laughs> pause and breathe. Yeah, I don't do a lot of pausing and breathing in my life. <laughs> I make a lot of breathing sounds, but I don't do a lot of pausing in between them. <laughs> I loved hearing about Pup Talk and your very interesting and so many stories still to tell life. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the listeners today? I, you know, I, I was thinking about what I really wanted to say, and I, I feel so fortunate in that I do something that I love. And that was the, that's the other the quote that I absolutely love is do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And that for me is so huge. And I was thinking, is it, can everybody expect to find that at some point in their lives? And I was even having a chat with my partner this morning to say, do you think, do you think that's like, can, can anybody find what we have both managed to find? And I don't know the answer, but I think to perhaps keep open to keep looking for it so that mm -hmm. if it if and when it does present itself that you're happy to move towards it or grab onto it as it's going past you and yeah I mean I, I wish everybody could love what they do as much as I love what I do because there isn't a single day that I don't love and appreciate everything that I get to do and I just feel so fortunate I want everybody to have that is that too mushy <laughs> It's not at all, because I have to say, part of the reason I do this is I'm always on this quest. What's my thing? And I think the thing with me is that I have several and I just need to figure out how to make them all work in my life and make them pay me enough money to eat and things yeah. like that. But no, I don't think it's mushy at all, because the reason I'm doing this is so that it inspires people to keep their eyes open or not be resistant to change. And stories like yours, I think, are really helpful to show that it's possible. So thanks for coming and sharing that with us today. It's been my absolute pleasure. I've loved talking to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.